Well, good morning, friends. Uh, good to be with you all this morning. Uh, I must admit, though, I'm a little upset with you all. You just can't make up your mind around here. 65 degrees on Friday. I was in a t-shirt enjoying the outdoors, and now this morning, this. Uh, would you just be like Malibu and be 75 every single day of the year? What's the, yeah, what's the deal here? Uh, but it is beautiful. What, what a glorious day. Thanks for braving the elements and, uh, and joining us on a, on a special morning. We're in the middle of a, a four-part series called Do You See What I See? Where we're taking an in-depth look at the birth of Christ to try to see things maybe we haven't seen before. And as Ryan mentioned, Christmas Eve, we're going to be kind of culminating this series. And we do hope you'll invite somebody with you. Invitation is the most powerful form of, uh, of growth and expression and, and to share joy, just to invite somebody along with you. And so that night, it's going to be a powerful family-friendly service, some goodie bags and gifts for the kids, hopefully some gifts for our visitors, and hopefully a, the, the best gift of all, the message of Jesus with us, uh, Emmanuel. So join us on that night. Let me pray for us this morning, and, uh, and then we'll jump into our, our series. But before I do, Ryan mentioned there'll be a dance by Thomas and the ballerinas. Uh, what he failed to realize, it was one of Thomas's ballerinas was up there. So beautiful job. Thank you, Heather, so much for that. Uh, what a neat little way to express and, and to see beauty, the beauty of Christmas, uh, maybe in a, a way we haven't seen it before. So let's pray together. God, thanks for this morning and already the good gifts that we've experienced and enjoyed. Thanks that we, again, can see friends here, see family, uh, maybe meet some new people, Lord, see some cool things happen on a stage we wouldn't see otherwise. But what we want to see is you. We want to see your face. We want to see your son. We want to see who we are and, and what we've been created to be. Would you help us to see all of that this morning? Empower us now. Breathe through this space now with the Holy Spirit as you did at Pentecost. Help us to be transformed by what we see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our world, it's so full of settings and situations where what you see at first isn't the only thing you're supposed to see or maybe even the most important thing you're supposed to see. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'm a huge chalk artist kind of guy. So in LA, I always had a, a 3D chalk art festival. Imagine stumbling across this little doozy on the sidewalk only to realize from the other side it's supposed to look like this. Or how about you saw the sidewalk chalk of this nature, not sure exactly what that is, and then you realize from the right perspective, you were supposed to see this. Or maybe it was those optical illusions, right? Those things were pretty popular back in the day. If you stare long enough at this image, you will see something pretty fascinating. Go ahead and take a look. Cross your eyes, right? Look all kind of weird. Stare long and hard enough at that image. Y'all should see yourself from up here. This is awesome. <laughs> all right, you would actually see a baby giraffe. Wait for it. Right? Did you see it? Here's the baby giraffe right here. There it is. <laughs> Did you see him? Wow. Do you see what I see? Or there's a wedding proposal that was pretty popular on the internet this past week. The guy here on the bottom right in the snowman sweater wanted to propose to the gal on his right. But he wanted to involve the family and he wanted to do it in a way that was super fun and super creative. So they all posed for a Christmas photo. And right now it says Merry Christmas. But without the gal in the front noticing, a few of the gals switched positions and the picture ended up looking like this. Marry me. You see, do you see what I see? Things are not always as they appear. And nowhere is that more evident than as it pertains to the Christmas story, to the birth of Jesus. We typically see a woman with a baby, some animals in a barn, and a star in the sky. But if we would just open our eyes... If we maybe just change our perspective, if we would look just a tad bit closer, we might see something very, very different. 
in the optical illusion, in the chalk art, in the picture, maybe in the story of the manger. Around this type of year, you may say or may hear a lot of people say, season's greetings. But if someone says that, do you actually have reason to be offended? Because the first season, the birth of Christ was not very enjoyable. It was not a very pleasant or happy time. In fact, the spirit of Christmas was rather cold. It was rather cruel. There's disgrace, there's disorder, there's domination, there's deception, there's even death. So saying season's greetings to someone is like saying, I hope chaos, discord, and pandemonium fill the next few weeks of your life. You know, how do you respond to that? Like, uh, you too. Season's greetings to you too. We like to, and it makes sense that we associate Jesus' birth with good things, right? It's, it's uh, snuggies and fireplaces. It's silly-shaped sugar cookies. It's dressing your animals up in hideous ways that Peter would be fully upset with. But the birth of Jesus, it seems to be more intense than that. It seems to be more cataclysmic than that. It's even more divisive than that. On that fateful night in Bethlehem, an incredible power struggle broke out between all of the powers that be. And that happened because although we typically see a little baby in a manger, what we're supposed to see is a king on a throne. When you look at the birth of Jesus, it's all about what you see. Look at the language that others use to describe the birth of Jesus. There's the angel's message to Mary in Luke 1. Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. Listen to this language now. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign forever over Jacob's descendants. His kingdom will never end. Mary responds to this news by singing a song. And in Mary's song, she thanks God for the fact that because of this little baby boy, many will rise and fall. The prophet Simeon reacts in Luke 2 by saying, this child is destined to cause the rising and failing of many in Israel. I mean, we got a lot of things that were said to us when Bailey and Cassie were born, but nobody talked about thrones and kingdoms and powers and people rising and falling. There seems to be a special baby. This seems to be a very special birth. Kingdoms, powers, authorities, rulers, thrones. And then we have what happened in Matthew 2. Let me read to you this story. It says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed at all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for that is what is written by the prophet. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly, he found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Go and he search for this child. And as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. 
And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then verse 16 says this, when Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and older, or under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Again, season's greetings? That sounds kind of odd, given what happened in the first season. As Jesus is born, or shortly thereafter, a group of men known as the Magi come to visit him. And we don't know much about these magi. They are mysterious figures, to say the least. Some refer to them as wise men. And tradition would have it that these men are probably, most likely, men of great significance. They hold very high positions of power and influence. Possibly, these men are kings themselves. We heard the term before, three kings. It might be these three guys. Think about it. They have traveled thousands of miles. Over the course of many months, maybe even years, they bring with them very expensive gifts. Blue-collar workers cannot afford to do any of those things. So these men are rich. They are powerful. They are influential. Unlike the shepherds we looked at last week, the magi are at the top of the ladder, the social ladder, the top of the food chain. They are on top of the world. And although we think there were three of them, most likely because they brought three gifts with them, chances are very likely these three men actually led a cavalry. They brought with them a small army. See, that's why the city becomes a little paranoid. That's why Herod gets a little anxious. We see three guys rolling the little tin. It's like, hey, three guys in a little tin. You see three guys leading 150 other guys on horseback. Maybe you think, ah, it's just little tin. Whatever, that happens all the time. But something strange is happening. If they bring with them an army, this means they're preparing for a battle. This means there's going to be a power struggle see, and it says that these magi came from the east. And that's very interesting because what's east of Jerusalem? The Parthian Empire. Parthian Empire is formerly known as Babylon. And if you know anything about Babylon, Babylon is a, a cruel place. Babylon is a cold place. Babylon is a place where God's people were forced to go into exile and forced to worship foreign gods and foreign kings. So that's funny. All of a sudden, the same guys they had to bow t- down to back in the day, those guys are coming now to bow down to God. Oh, the roles have reversed, haven't they? And I love Psalm 72, 11. It says, all kings will one day fall down before him. Maybe that's happening already. So a group of foreign pagan kings leading a small army comes to Bethlehem to worship, present gifts, and bow down to baby Jesus. If that's happened to you at the birth of your first, please come and tell me afterward. I'd like to hear all about it. This is strange. This is odd. Something significant is taking place here, and it seems to be far more than a baby lying in a manger. And maybe, maybe, that's why King Herod, of all the characters in this story, he seems to get it. He's the king. And so if this truly is not just a baby on a manger, but another king coming to town, that's why he's all up in arms. You know anything about monarchs, you know they don't like to share, especially their thrones. And that's especially true with Herod. And so if another king is coming, that means trouble for Herod. So what does he do? He 
decides to eradicate anyone who might take away his power. He decides to kill off all of the baby boys so that he can remain on his throne. You see, guys, this story, the birth story, is far more than a baby in a manger born to two unwed, uneducated, unimportant uh, foreigners in some insignificant backwaters town. This is far more than that. Open your eyes. Do you see what I see? This is the coronation ceremony for the king. I love the way one author put it. Although on the surface, little had changed. The tyrant Herod still ruled. Roman troops were still stringing up patriots. Jerusalem still overflowed with poor people and beggars. But underneath, because of this birth, everything had changed. A new force had arrived to undermine all other powers. Wow. See, if you look closely, if you just change your perspective just enough, if you look at the picture second time over, you will see at the birth of Christ, God is actually making a huge announcement. He said it through the angels, he said it through magi, and he espe- or he said it through Mary, and he especially says it through the magi. The king of all kings has come. The king of the universe is here. He has come to take his rightful seat on the throne. The king has come to make things right. The kim- king has come to take back what and who is rightfully his. And one day, all powers, all authorities, all governments, all world entities, all other kings, decay, disease, even death itself, everything one day will bow down to that king. That king has come. In Philippians 2, we read that at one point in history, in the the future, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. And we typically read that like, yeah, see, it's not that. One day the world will fully see the king and they will all bow down. And I love the story of the birth because it's starting to happen. The fulfillment of this passage is starting to happen. The stars align for the king of kings. They don't bow down, they kind of raise up, but you get what I'm saying. The animal kingdom, they kind of step aside and bow down to the king of kings. Foreigners from a strange land, kings in fact, come and bow down to the king of kings. Every knee will bow. It started. It's happening. The king is here. See, the angels proclaimed that. The king is here. Mary rejoiced that the king is here. The magi believed the king is here. Simeon said, the king is finally here. Church, the king is here. He's here. He's on the throne. Don't see a baby in a manger. See your king sitting on his throne. And before we go any further, we've got to stop here and take a little personal evaluation Because I think Matthew 2 challenges us to make a decision. It challenges us to ask ourselves, where do we fall on on the pendulum? You are either like the Magi or you're like Herod. There's no in between. I wish it were the case. I wish it were like, okay, Bob, show them what's behind door number three. Those are the only two doors? That's it? I either give up my entire life and sacrifice talents, treasures, money, and everything to worship the Jesus, or I'm doing things that will undermine his ministry. I'm either elevating him or I'm exasperating him. I'm either killing him or I'm praising him. Those are my two extremes. Yes, those are the two extremes. One group of men wanted to know where the baby was so they could bow down before his throne. The other man wanted to know where the baby was so we could take him out so he wouldn't take his throne. Very different perspective. And those really are the only two options for us. We're either fighting for the throne, we're either bowing uh, down or bowing down to the one who deserves to sit on it. If you're like Herod, if you're the one on the throne, then you're fighting for power. You're fighting for recognition. You're fighting to be important. 
Your life is motivated by selfishness, accumulation, and accolades. If you're like Herod, you want praise. You want people to think highly of you and to like you and to respect you. But if that's you, most likely your life's gonna be filled with stress and anxiety, all kinds of things that was filled with his life. Worry, distrust, you will ultimately be known for and remembered for what Herod was, death. If you're like him, fighting for your rights, demanding that your husband tell you that you're right, you know, demanding that your kids think that you're the best parent, demanding all these things, guess what? Your life will be filled with death. You're fighting for power. You're fighting to stay on the throne if you're like Herod. But if you're like the Magi, you allow Jesus to have the throne if you allow him to have the power and to make the decisions in your life, if you humble yourself before him, if you make it about his name, his will, his kingdom, and not your name, your will, and your kingdom, if you elevate him above yourself, you will live a life like the Magi, free, grateful, excited, and generous. These are your two options. Be on the throne and be miserable. Give up the throne and be filled with joy. Let the real king have the throne. It's his anyway. He looks better in it than you do. It's his throne. The king is here. He's in control. He's the one that creates and sustains everything. He's the one that brings about good in all situations. He's the one who understands how to experience and have abundant life. He's the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. He does, not you. Give him the throne. Stop trying to lead and manipulate and control everything in your life or the lives of those around you. Stop demanding recognition and recognize him. Stop fighting for power and let him infuse you with power. Stop demanding that others see you and just start looking at him. It's not about you, Herod. It's not about your throne, your will, your way, your kingdom. It's about him, his kingdom. The king is here. And speaking of kingdom, I think the birth story not only challenges to make a decision, have you ever claimed this baby as king? That's a question you've got to ask yourself this morning. But more than that, it challenges us to be par partners with this king. See, because when a, when a new king comes, he ushers in a new way of doing things, right? When a king comes, he brings with him his kingdom. That's his priorities, his objectives, the things that are most important to him. And so when Jesus prays, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Maybe he's not giving us a cute little memory verse or something that we're supposed to crochet and hang up in the bathroom. Maybe what he's giving to us is a command from the king. Bring my kingdom here. I'm on the throne and now it's time for the world to look and act like the kingdom it was supposed to. See guys, life has to be about more, doesn't it? It has to be about more than checking your email every 35 seconds. It has to be more than updating your status every six seconds or checking Instagram all the time. It's gotta be about more than just getting a degree and then getting a job and then getting paid and then complaining you don't get paid enough and then looking for more money. Right, it's gotta be about more than that. You know what Matthew 2 tells you? It's about a lot more than that. Your life is about honoring the king and partnering with him to bring the kingdom here. That's a high calling. You want those other things? Go ahead, you'll waste your life. You want full life, abundant life, eternal life? Worship the king, bring the kingdom here. Oh, that's crazy. Yes, thank you, sister. All right, have you ever seen the movie Gladiator? Anybody fans of Gladiator? Good movie. I asked first service, any fans of Gladiators? And people were like thoroughly confused. Like, uh, well, not sure if we should say yes to that or not. <laughs> Anybody love Bloodbath? Okay, um, the movie. Think about how Commodus comes into power. How does he come into power? 150 days of games. Bloody, 
messy, meaningless games. And the thing that defined the coronation ceremony for Commodus ended up defining his entire kingdom. Meaninglessness, death, blood. So it's interesting the things that mark the inauguration of a king seem to mark his kingdom. The way a king comes into power shows us how he wants to use his power, shows us how he wants us to use our power. So let's look real fast. With a few minutes left this morning together. How did Christ come into power? What is this new kingdom supposed to look like? Okay, I've praised Jesus as king, and yes, I want to bring his kingdom here, but I got no idea what you're talking about. What kind of kingdom are we talking about here? What am I supposed to do? Let's just look at how the baby came. Let's look at how the king came. That will tell us a lot about how he wants his kingdom to look. So there are three things I think that marked and defined the inauguration of Christ. The first is scandal. Throughout the birth narrative, we just hear of one scandal after another after another. God chose scandalous things to make a point time after time. He chose a poor, marginalized, insignificant, virgin, unmarried teenage girl to be his baby's mama. That's scandalous. That's crazy. Who does that? He chose to send the first birth announcement to the sketchy homeless shepherds who cursed and drank and smelled really bad. That's scandalous. He invited foreigners from a despised land to host the baby shower. That's scandalous. What are you doing here, God? He's doing scandal. He's living in and out of scandal. Scandal runs throughout the story. And although it might sound odd, I think Christ's kingdom is supposed to be about scandal. Therefore, I think our lives in our church should be all about scandal. I know what you're thinking. Scandal. Well, yeah, the church does pretty good with scandal. I'm not talking about the scandal of the, the preacher sleeping with the secretary or some gal taking all the money from the benevolence fund. Not that kind of scandal. You know what scandal I'm talking about? Grace. Because grace is scandalous. By its very nature, grace is this crazy, over-the-top, can't-make-sense-of-it, scandalous thing. It's grace. Grace is accepting, loving, and empowering those who don't deserve it, those who've messed things up, those who would be forgotten at best, punished at worst. That's scandalous. Grace is seeing people others refuse to see. It's caring for people others refuse to care about. It's helping people, loving people, serving people others have forgotten about. That's grace, and it's scandalous. And if we commit ourselves to it, we will look pretty scandalous ourselves. See, it'll be scandalous when we open our doors and our arms and our hearts to the addict, to the pregnant teenager, to the Muslim refugee. That's scandalous, but it's a good kind of scandal. It'll be scandalous when we forgive others, our exes, our abusers, those who've made a mess of our life and then ran off. It'll be scandalous when we love and serve them. The good kind of scandal. It'll be scandalous when we give away more of our stuff than we hoard for ourselves. That'll be scandalous. It'll be scandalous when we start pouring resources into ministries or parachurch organizations or to nonprofits that are serving the marginalized, the weak, the forgotten. That's scandalous, church. And guess what? I want to be in a scandal. Don't take that out of context, okay? It's kind of weird. John, let's make sure we edit that just right. I can be... See that on YouTube. Okay. But when we extend grace, wonderful, amazing grace, you know what we're extending? Scandal. Grace is scandalous, but it's the best kind. And I want your life and our church to be known for it because the kingdom is known for it. The inauguration of the king 
was known for it. The second trait that marked Christ's coming was sacrifice. I read a great quote this past week. Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. That's true of most things in life, isn't it? When you get it for free, you don't really care. You're not really all that invested. You just kind of pass on it. But when you invest in it, when you have to give something to it, it means you're in it. You're more committed. Well, think about how much, how committed Jesus was. Think about how much it cost him to do what he did. He was fully God. Not sure if we understand that. All all power, all authority, all dominion, all control in the universe, and he gave it up. He sacrificed it for us. He traded heaven for headaches, perfection for pimples, glory for goofballs. That's the only G word I could think of. But he traded this amazing thing, and not just traded, he sacrificed it. He sacrificed what he had to come to us. He sacrificed more than we'll ever know during his life and especially during his death. And so sacrifice is what marked the inauguration of the king. It should mark our lives and our church then as well. So the question is, how much are we sacrificing? Are we willing, church, to sacrifice our preferences for the sake of mission? Are we willing to sacrifice comfort for the sake of the lost? Are we willing to sacrifice knowing everyone so everyone can come to know him? Are we willing to sacrifice the way we've always done it for the way the world needs us to do it or the way the gospel tells us to do it? Are we willing to sacrifice our money for the sake of half the world that lives in extreme poverty? Are we willing to sacrifice our time or the kids' soccer game or the PTA meeting or your ski weekend for your family here, the church family that needs you? Are you going to sacrifice your life for the sake of the world? That's the question the Christmas story asks. Because you see, The king came, and when he came, he brought with him sacrifice. He came in and through sacrifice, and now he wants his kingdom to be marked by sacrifice as well. The world says sex, stuff, success. The king says sacrifice, service, selflessness. You choose and see how the former works out for you. And finally, Christ's kingdom is marked by simplicity. I just love how in this story, it's just the most basic things, just menial, everyday kind of things that we see. It's a baby, it's a woman, it's a barn, it's a star, it's some guys. It's just basic stuff. And through basic stuff, God does the incredible. He changes the world forever. You see, God didn't rely on extravagance or excitement or expertise or even excessiveness to make his point. God said a lot, he didn't have to say a lot. He did a lot, and he didn't have to do a lot. He accomplished a lot and he didn't have to use or buy or waste a lot. Man, that's a powerful message for us, isn't it? It's so easy for us to overcomplicate things. Our lives get so full of so many things, we're not sure what the, what the core things are anymore. So let me remind you, church, we have a simple message to share. Jesus came to fix the three relationships that went haywire in the beginning. Us in creation, us in each other, us in God. Jesus came to forgive our past, empower our present, give us hope for the future. It's simple. You just got to share it. It's simple. We have a simple mission. We love our father by primarily loving his children. See, he doesn't need a whole lot from us. The whole earth is his. What he needs us to do is care for his children. And so it's simple. We just got to see people, know people, love people, serve people. We have a simple motivation. It's love. We've been so changed by the love of Christ that you would love me, that you would know me, that you would care about me, that you would come into my mess, my darkness, like we talked about last week, and you would save me from it. You're so overwhelmed by that love. You've got to share love with other people. It's simple. You've received it. You've experienced it. You've been changed by it. You then share it with others. 
and we have a simple means by which we accomplish what we want to accomplish. You're going to get sick and tired of me hearing about, or hearing about me talking about the power of one, but I believe in it. I didn't need to just fill my time up. If I, I'll go golfing if I want to fill my time up with something. The power of one, I believe, is a simple means to accomplish an amazing mission. It's simple stuff. And I'm not sure we've experienced the fullness yet, the fruit of the power of one, because I don't think we've all bought into it quite yet. But when we do, church, watch out. When we're in the word, when we're in people's lives, when we're sacrificially giving, you just watch out what happens. It's simple, and yet it will be so profound. So I hope and pray that your life, our church, will be marked by the same things the coronation of Christ was marked by. Scandal, sacrifice, and simplicity. Take an evaluation of your week of your life this week, how well are you doing on those things? What kind of scandal are you involved in? The good kind, the bad kind? What kind of sacrifice are you involved in? The easy kind or the truly sacrificial kind? And what kind of simplicity are you living in and living out? The truly simple or the overcomplicated? Ask yourself those questions this week. Let me close this morning by telling you a story that I think will perfectly summarize this message and really the Christmas story as a whole. I know that for some of us, and I'm so proud of Ryan for saying it before, that, that this time can be a hard time for a lot of people. And you know why? Because I'm saying this morning, the king is here, the king is here, the king is here. Some of you are like, it doesn't feel like he's here. You say he's on the throne and he's in control of everything. It sure doesn't look or feel like the king has control of everything. My world is spinning out of control. It seems as if evil is on the throne, but I want you to understand something. First of all, I can sympathize with that. I understand why you have those reservations and some of those headaches and some of those hang-ups, but you've got to understand something about our king. He is good. He's good. And you, so, you, so you know what that means? That means that unlike all other kings who will use and abuse power to make a point, he will not. He doesn't want to exercise his might or his strength in ways that might undermine his mission. Here's how I make sense of that. Here's the story I want to share with you. Imagine a kingdom led by a really good king. This king loves his people, and the people love him. And this kingdom is just operating in perfect harmony. The people are in harmony with creation, with each other, with their king. Everybody is working together. Everybody has the other's best interest in mind. It's a beautiful kingdom. Can you see that kingdom now? And then imagine one day someone in that kingdom starts telling lies and spreading rumors about the king. One day someone has an ax to grind with this king, so he starts to tell everybody the king is evil. You know that king up there? Yeah, he's selfish. He's manipulative. The king is holding out on us. You can't trust this king. And this particular guy is very persuasive, so a lot of other people start to believe him. And in fact, one day, the entire kingdom believes the king is cruel and out to get them or out to hurt them. Now, you can imagine this hurts the king's feelings. He's deeply troubled by this. The things people are saying go completely against his very nature, his very character. So, he could start yelling at everybody. That probably wouldn't do much good. He could start punishing everybody. Well, that wouldn't do a whole lot of good. He could just send his army to annihilate everybody. That wouldn't do much good. Although all of those are within his means and his right to do. He's the king. He's over it all. He can do whatever he wants with it all. He refuses to do any of those things because it would only hurt the people and drive them further away. So the king one day has an idea. It's an unthinkable idea. What he's going to do is become one of them. He decides the best thing to do is to dress up like a poor carpenter and open up shop downtown in a really sketchy part of town. 
He begins to live and work right alongside the marginalized and the messed up. And as he takes them in, as he takes their furniture in, as he works for them, he just cares for them. He loves them. He exemplifies the qualities of a good king. And beyond that, he starts to tell them about the king. He says, I, I know you think otherwise, but the king really loves you. The king is a good king. He cares about you and he wants what's best for you. He wants to give you an abundant life. And after a while, the people have to choose between the liar and the carpenter. And they choose the carpenter because his life is just so much more full. But after they choose the carpenter, they're so convicted because what are we gonna do now? If we try to go back to the king, he's probably gonna punish us. He's probably gonna hurt us. He's probably gonna banish us. What are we gonna do, carpenter? How do we ever go to the, before the king and tell him that we're sorry? In that moment, the carpenter reveals his true identity. He says, you don't have to, you already have. I'm right here. I told you he was a good king. I told you he loved you. I told you he came for you. I told you he would rescue you, and I told you he would open your eyes. See, guys, we see a baby lying in a manger, maybe a carpenter in Jerusalem. I think we're supposed to see a king, a king on a throne, the king of all kings, our king. And like the Magi, I pray this day, this season, this year, this lifetime, we bow down and worship him as such. Let me pray that over you. I'm gonna invite the band up to come and, and play another special song that I've asked them to play for us this week. Let's, let's pray. God, wow, there's so much to see in the birth of your son. You did so much in that moment. Thank you for hopefully opening our eyes this morning, God, to seeing more to this story. We pray, God, that we won't just see a little baby lying in a manger, but that we will see the king of kings sitting on a throne. And it doesn't make sense. We would think it would happen in a castle, in some ivory tower, surrounded by guards, and yet nothing could be further from the truth that happened in a barn, in a manger, in a stable. But that doesn't make Jesus any less of a king. In fact, it makes him a great king. Because instead of hurting us, yelling at us, punishing us, annihilating us, he came to be with us. He came to speak our language and to show us the way. Thank you so much for Jesus. I do pray that we would all this morning proclaim him as king and that we would want his kingdom to come in our life, in our homes, our church, in our city more than anything else. Please make it so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.